what is your purpose? And uh, today he will be sharing. Well, he'll come up and share it. All right. So let's put our hands together. Let's welcome back up Pastor Benjamin Robinson. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome, 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 awesome. Yeah, you know, um, uh, uh, it's strange for me being a grandfather. Because the thing about grandparents is you just want to spoil your grandkids. But then, but then, but then, but then mom and dad have to put the smack down. (laughs) And say, no, so my mother... Behind my back, she's constantly giving Alethea ice cream and cookies and, and uh, you know, anything she wants. I saw my, my, my uh, niece, my brother has three daughters and one more in the oven. His, wife's, his wife is cooking one more. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, they're like the most fertile family in the world. Like my, my brother looks at her and she gets pregnant. But um, uh, um, his, his daughter, Callista, his first daughter, Callista, She's like seven years old now. And we were at the mall one time about a year ago. And uh, she looked at, at, at another one of our cousins, uh, one of her cousins. And she said, she said, I bet I can get grandma to buy me that watch. I said, she'll buy me anything. <laughs> and she went to my mother and she said, buy me that. And she pointed at this expensive pair of shoes. My mom said, okay. <laughs> right? See, see, I told you she'll buy me anything. Mommy and daddy would have said no. So that's all Pastor Christian's doing as he's giving you your vegetables. But uh, <laughs> I went to him this morning. I said, can I spoil him a little bit? Is that okay? <laughs> so, um, yes. Listen, uh, so happy to be with you. Uh, last night I spent a lot of time on the purpose teaching. Didn't realize how much time I spent on it. Pastor Christian said afterwards that I preached for an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, so that's a long time, even for me. It's a long time. Uh, somebody said, well, uh, you need to give a, a, a nice sermonette. You know what sermonettes make? They make Christianettes. You know, what, you know what a Christianette is? It's a little Smurf Christian. I actually heard a preaching professor say, if you can't say it in 15 minutes, it's not worth saying. All right, let's throw out all the teachings of Jesus. All the sermons of Paul, everything. Paul preached... Listen, when somebody falls out of there and dies because I preach too long, then I'll, then I'll shorten it. <laughs> Watch out, Marcus. <laughs> I spent a long time on, on the purpose teaching last night because I wanted to establish you in it. Because it's ridiculous to talk about your identity as God's sons and daughters if you don't first know that he's your father. Here's the thing. Many of us have a blockage in the area of the fatherhood of God, but yet we try to claim that we're his sons and daughters. And it's true, but talking about being somebody's son or somebody's daughter is meaningless if you're not securing them as your father. And so you got to get secure in your purpose as being, as being to be with the father and being the recipients and objects of his love so that we can move on to the next station and talk about your identity. 
We can't talk about your identity until we talk about your purpose. And last night we talked about your purpose. Your purpose is not functional. It's relational. Your purpose is not in what you're going to do when you grow up. Your purpose is not, and we talk about what I'm going to be when I grow up. No, it's just what I'm going to do when I grow up, not what I'm going to be. You cannot become a firefighter as if that's a part of your being. That's just what you do. But you're not a firefighter when you go home to your wife and kids. You're just a husband. See, I carry, I have a lot of titles and I wear a lot of hats. I'm pastor and whatever. I, I, I teach at seminary and, and, and I, you know, I do a lot of things. But when I go home to my parents' house, I'm just Benjamin. And when I go home to my wife, I'm just Benjamin. And to my daughter, I'm just daddy. My daughter never calls me pastor. My wife never calls me pastor. My parents never call me pastor. Because relationships are inherently uh, uh, being focused rather than doing focused. That is, at a certain point in any relationship, the functions come to an end. If you think about the marriage relationship, the first thing that comes to your mind is a whole list of marital activities that you're going to do when you become a married person. And yes, there will be a whole lot of marital activities, but every married person knows that there comes a point where those activities come to an end. There's nothing left to do. And now it's just you and her in the house. And, now, and who are you when all of your activities and all of your functions are stripped away? Now we're talking about your identity. Identity is the act of being who you are. Identity is the act of being who you are. The problem is that I'm not who I think I am. And I'm not who you think I am. I'm who I think you think I am. That revelation was too deep. It just went right over you. The problem is I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I'm who I think you think I am. So if I think you think I'm a prophet, I'm going to prophesy. And if I think you think I'm a nobody, I'm just going to sit in the corner. And if I think you think I'm great, I'm going to hold my head up. But if I think you think that I suck. And so I'm constantly responding to who I think you think I am. I'm constantly trying to play the role that I think you expect me to play. I'm, and, and all that means is I don't know who I am. I'm expecting you to know. There's a man who is riding on a train. And he got in an argument with the attendant on the train over something. And the man was very important. But he, the, the, the attendant who was helping him didn't know how important he was. And finally the man stood up and he screamed. He said, do you know who I am? And the attendant stopped and turned and looked at the rest of the train and said, excuse me, does anyone know who this man is? He seems to have forgotten. <laughs> That's the question, isn't it? Do you know who I am? And what we see in the life of Jesus is that who he was did not change based upon whose presence he was in. When, when they cried out, you know, when they wanted to, to enthrone him as king, he slipped out of their presence. I don't need that. When the demons cried out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, he said, shut up, I don't need that. 
And when he stood in the presence of Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate was getting ready to, or Herod was getting ready to sentence him to death, he says, are you a king? He said, that's right, I'm a king. For this reason I was born. And for this reason I came into the world. That I might bear witness to the truth. And all who believe in the truth, they agree with me. He says that in the face of the man who's getting ready to sign the decree to take his life. He said, don't you know I have the power to take your life? He said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. I know who I am. I don't care if nobody else in the world knows who I am. I know who I am because who I am is in heaven. My identity is solidified in the heavens and not in the earth. And so I can live it in the earth as one whose confidence comes from the heavens. And so there's a solidity in the life of Jesus. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what we're reaching for. Understanding our identity. Now I want to I wanna talk about the life of Joseph a little bit. Understanding your identity. What I see in the life of Joseph is that this man was established in his identity as a son. And, and, and before I get there, I want to say this. The biggest problem in the body of Christ is not the absence of natural fathers. The biggest problem in the body of Christ is the absence of spiritual fathers. Paul says to the Corinthians, though you may have had 10,000 teachers in Christ, you don't have many fathers. But through the gospel, I've become your father. And the problem is not that you don't have a natural father or that your natural father wasn't there. The problem is that you don't know how to relate to a spiritual father because spiritual sonship comes through a spiritual father in an even more powerful way than it would come through a natural father. Now, Abraham, the scripture tells us that when Abraham heard that his nephew Lot had been carried off, he gathered the 318 trained men that were, that were born in his household and he went off to war. This is in Genesis 14. And he fought the enemy and he defeated the five kings and he brought back Lot and his family and all of the spoils. Had 318 trained men. And that's what most churches look like. 318 trained men born in my household. They know their roles. They know their ministries. They understand their authority. They know their positions. They know their functions. They know how to run the ministry like a well-oiled machine, but they're servants. In the very next chapter, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm your shield, your very great reward. And Abraham said, yeah, but what would you give me? Because I have no sons. And a slave, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to inherit my estate. He said, I've got 318 trained men, but I don't have any sons. And what I see happening across the body of Christ is that pastors will serve 50, 60 years and not have one son to leave the inheritance to in the house. And so they're about to retire after 50, 60 years of ministry. And they say, who's going to take the church? I got a whole bunch of trained men, but they're all slaves. They're all servants. They know their roles and they serve with excellence, but they don't have my heart. They don't have my DNA. They're not sons. And I, I just don't feel right giving them the inheritance. So Abraham says, what can you give me? I have no sons. And God promises him a son. Now, this is the key. Sonship it's all about inheritance. To say that you are sons and daughters of God, it means first and foremost that you have an inheritance in Him. That's what it means. And that's why the Bible uses the term sonship rather than daughterhood. It doesn't say sonship and daughterhood. Why? In the ancient world, daughters didn't have an inheritance. They became an inheritance. 
They were given to another family. When the Bible says you are all sons of God, male and female, you're all sons of God through Jesus Christ. It means indiscriminately of your gender, you all receive an inheritance from God the same way the son does in the Old Testament. All of you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning every single one of you, male and female, you get the inheritance. So when we're talking about sonship, we're talking about an inheritance that you receive. Now, Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14 and following. He says to the Ephesian church, when, I heard, when I've heard of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith and your love for all the saints, I have not ceased making mention of you in my prayers. And he says, I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. So he's praying for revelation. He says, I, there's some things that your eyes are closed to, and I'm praying that your eyes would open. Some things that your hearts are closed to, but I'm praying that your hearts would open. Some things that have gone right over your head that God's been trying to give you, but I'm praying that you would open up your eyes, lift up your heads, and reach out and take what's right before you that God's giving you. And he says, these are the three things that I pray God would give you revelation to see. Number one, what is the hope of his calling? That is the end of the matter. That is, God doesn't see you in your current position, in your current situation, and in your current condition. He sees you as you are going to be. The scripture says, as many as he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Meaning, God predestined you before the foundation of the world, that by the time he's done with you, you're going to look just like Jesus. Oh, that's powerful. He says in Ephesians 1, that he predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Come on, somebody. Oh, you're working on getting stuff out of your life. Every, t- You know, the Lord keeps reminding me of that. And, and I've been going through a season where the Lord's been putting his finger on stuff in my life. You deal with this. You get this out of your life. You cleanse your garments of this. I'll never. My wife was gone. It was last week, Saturday night last week. I'm home and I'm in prayer and I'm preparing for the Sunday morning service. My daughter is asleep. And as I'm preparing, I just heard the spirit of the Lord say, loathing even the garments stained by wicked flesh. You must loathe even the garments stained by wicked flesh. And all of a sudden, the first thing that flashed in my mind, and I knew it was the Spirit of the Lord, was the suit I was planning on wearing the next morning. Why? Because I buy all of my suits on consignment. They all are used. Why? Because the consignment stores I shop at, I can get a $2,000 suit for $200. They're all Dolce & Gabbana and Armani and Zania and Canali and they're all these high brand, high name, high dollar, high ticket items that I get for low dollar prices. Come on, somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm praying for the full price anointing. You know, my spiritual, my spiritual father always tells me Abraham never asked for a deal. So I'm just, I'm growing into that Abrahamic stage because I still need a deal. But uh, 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 I th- I had just bought a suit, just got it dry cleaned and got it altered and it fit me perfect. And I, and, and I was ready to wear it the next morning. And the Lord said, abhorring even the garments stained by wicked flesh. And the first thing that came to my mind was that suit that I was planning on wearing. And I said, oh my God, I don't know who wore that suit. I don't know what he did. It's the spirit of God is showing me that it's stained by wicked flesh. And I went in my closet and I grabbed us. I, I got to throw this out. And then I looked, oh, this one's used to wicked flesh. This one's used to wicked flesh, wicked flesh, wicked flesh. And then I came to my last suit. It was the only suit that I have left over from when I used to buy suits brand new. And then all of a sudden the spirit of God, I thought this is the only one I can wear as if I'm the only person that's clean, right? 
And then the Holy Spirit began to put his finger on stuff in my life. Bam. Just to show me my wickedness and my uncleanness and, and the thoughts of my heart and the intentions of and all of this. It was like it was filthy rags before him. And all of my self-righteousness just fell to the ground. And I said, God, I can't even wear this wicked flesh. God, I'm naked before you. There's nothing I can wear. It's all wicked flesh. And I went to bed almost in terror that night. Just just feeling the holiness of God and being confronted with my unholiness. The next morning when I woke up, Sunday morning, I woke up early. The first thing I saw was a vision of myself wearing that suit that I had thrown out and said, wicked flesh. But when I saw myself wearing that that suit, I was holy. I was clean. I mean, I saw myself holy, clean, and blameless. I said, Lord, I don't get it. I thought last night you showed me that that suit was stained by wicked flesh. And all of a sudden the Lord gave me Revelation chapter 7. These are those who have washed their garments in the precious blood of Christ. And the Lord said, I am even able to take the garments stained by wicked flesh and wash them clean and make them white as snow. I am able to cleanse. And sometimes you get overwhelmed by looking at the stuff in your life that you can't seem to get right. But the scripture says he predestined you to be holy and blameless. Meaning he decreed it before the foundation of the world. It is not dependent upon your ability to make yourself clean. It is dependent upon his ability to cleanse to the uttermost. But when you understand inheritance, you understand that. Whenever I go see my spiritual father, there's a holiness about him. Like no other man I've ever met, I feel like I'm standing before the holiness of God. There's a purity about him. He is just pure. He is clean. Whenever he comes to my church, the leaders in my church, they come to me and they say things like, there's something about him that's just so right. I mean, when you're in his presence, you just feel like he's right with God. I mean, like there's nothing in his life that's wrong. I mean, he's just right and you just feel it like there's this holiness and I feel the holiness of God. But for years I would sit with him and feel the holiness of God from him as a contrast against my own unholiness. And I would go home and I'd feel dirty and I'd pray, Lord, would you give me that holiness that's in him? And all of a sudden one day the Lord interrupted me and said, son, that's your inheritance. That's why I gave him him to you as your spiritual father. What you see in your father is in you. It's your inheritance. And when you begin to understand sonship and daughterhood, you begin to understand that it first and foremost means that you have an inheritance. Now, from that moment, whenever I looked at him, whatever I saw in his life, I'd say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I receive it. It's mine. It's, you know, what? when I was growing up in my, in my parents' house, my, I came from a musical family. My father would sit down at the piano and play badly, but it sounded great to me because I was a little kid. You know, everything sounds great. Whatever your dad does when you're a little kid, it just seems awesome. So my dad would sit and play. I just assumed that I could play too. I didn't know that I assumed, but I would climb up on the piano and try to do what daddy did. What, imitation is the confidence of knowing that whatever you see your daddy doing, you can do. That's why Jesus said, I only do what I see the father doing. Why? Because if I see the father doing it and I'm his son, it's mine too by virtue of my inheritance. So if I see the father raise the dead, I'm going to go raise the dead. If I see him give sight to the blind, I'm going to turn around and give sight to the blind. If I see him cause the lame to walk, I'm going to speak to the lame and make them walk. Why? Because whatever I see in my father, it's my inheritance. Because I'm his son. My mother would go to church and she would sing and she'd do these big concerts. And so I would just sing. La, la, la. I was singing everywhere. Everywhere I went, I, would, I just assumed that I could sing. Why? Because my mama can sing and my daddy can sing and, and my whole family can sing and my aunts and uncles can sing. I can sing. I don't need, I didn't even know what I sounded like. 
My daughter, she loves to sing. She's constantly singing badly. <laughs> but you know what? She sings badly with confidence. <laughs> She don't care how she sounds. She hears the father doing it and she hears her mother doing it. And she knows that's my inheritance. That's mine. I can sing. And she's not self-conscious about it at all. Oh, oh, did I hit a bad note? Oh, was that flat? Oh, was that sharp? Oh, you don't have to be self-conscious about it when you know it's your inheritance. So that if I know it's my inheritance, even if I hit a bad note, that was, that was not, that was just a, that was an exception, not the rule. Even if I have a bad moment, it doesn't make me bad. It's my inheritance. Now watch this. Here's the thing. God placed a spiritual father over you and a spiritual mother over you in order to give you your inheritance. Let me, let me give you one more piece to this puzzle. I was praying one day and I was just meditating on some of the things I saw in my spiritual father. And I, I, I just saw this, what the Lord was giving me very clearly. And I saw it in him, his prayer life. I want that more than anything else. His prayer life. He was telling me, he said, you know, um, yesterday, he's got this very gentle manner about him. You know, yesterday I took my daughter and I pulled up in front of her school. And it was about 8 a.m. And she got out of the car. I said goodbye. And the moment she turned her back to me, the Spirit of the Lord came. And he quickened a passage of Scripture. And I turned there in my Bible and began to meditate. And he said, and I was taken up in the Spirit. And God was downloading revelation and speaking to me. And when I looked up, it was 3 o'clock and she was coming out and getting in the car. I said, what? I get caught up in the spirit and look at the clock and 10 minutes went by. I thought I'd been here for hours. <laughs> he was telling me, I asked him about fasting one day. He said, oh yeah. See, when was the last time I fasted? Yes, yes, yes. My wife came to me about a month ago. And she said, Robert, do you realize you haven't eaten in seven days? And I said, really? <laughs> he said, because the Lord was downloading so much revelation, I was just so full. I didn't even realize that I wasn't eating food because I didn't miss it. So I don't fast on purpose anymore. I said, what? <laughs> this one will blow you away. I called him one Tuesday morning and uh, he answers the phone about 9 a.m. And he sounds strong. Benjamin, how are you this morning? I said, oh, I'm good. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Oh, I, I can hear the victory in your voice. I said, oh, praise God. Amen. Right. And so I start sharing with him what's on my heart and he starts speaking into my life. And then he says, yes, you know, I've been up all night long. My daughter called me at 1 a.m. and she's, she's been sick. She's been ill. And so when, when my daughter told me she was sick, I laid on my face all night long and cried out to God and commanded healing in her body. It hasn't broken yet, but I know it will. I'm going back into my prayer closet right now and I'll be on my face until she's well. 
Now, he, after praying all night long, he sounded like he had just slept eight hours. He prayed all day and all night and all day again. And that night, it was two and a half, uh, all night, all day, all day. <laughs> anyway, it was like 48 hours where he had just laid on his face and warred before the Lord on behalf of his daughter. And then finally his daughter called and said, it broke, Dad. It broke. I'm better. She has this cyclical vomiting thing where she just couldn't stop vomiting. She vomited for 48 hours. And he called me the next morning. He said, yes, it broke over her life last night. It just broke. And he said, you see how weak that demonic power was? It couldn't even last three days. <laughs> Now, I pray for healing for three minutes, and if it doesn't happen, I'm discouraged. He prays 48 hours before the healing happens, and then he's encouraged. Oh, that was easy. That was weak. That was a low-level. And he told me, the Lord showed me that those low-level demonic powers, they can only resist your faith for three days. This one couldn't even resist three days. It was weak. He said, but the Lord told me that mid-level demonic powers can resist 10 days. But even the high-level demonic powers can't resist more than 21 days. So if I apply my faith against anything consistently and unrelentingly for 21 days, it'll break. I said, what? <laughs> and I went home and I was just meditating on these things. I said, God, give me that kind of prayer life. I have seen him pray for days and weeks and months and year for th years for things with little or no breakthrough. And he comes out of it even more encouraged. He'll come, I mean, in what would disappoint me and disturb me and distress me and make me feel like God has left me and abandoned me and, and just sit, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to hell. Maybe I'm not even a believer. He comes out of it and says, oh, the Lord showed me it's going to be real powerful. <laughs> oh, the Lord showed me that this is going to be a powerful ministry he's shaping in this person. And that's why this, this thing is happening. And I'm praying one day. I said, God, would you give me that? I want that. I want to receive that as my inheritance. I want that. I, I want that. I lay claim to that in the spirit. And I'm just praying these things. And all of a sudden in prayer, my eyes lifted above him. And I saw the father's throne. And there was no sin in him. None. He was light. And in him there was no darkness at all. And there was complete authority in him. And there was no defeat in him. It was all victory. And there was no fear in him or anxiety in him. He was completely at rest and at peace. But yet completely victorious and at war. And the father said, son, this is your inheritance. But I put a piece of it, just a little piece of it, in this man. Little piece. And so when God gives you a spiritual father, he takes a piece of your inheritance and puts it in that man. But when you see that piece of that inheritance that he has for you, it's, it, it's designed to lift your eyes above that man so that you begin to see the heavenly father. So that you're able to say, I can relate to the Heavenly Father because of this spiritual father that God has put in my life. See, God puts the destitute in families. 
And here's how it works. The minute we start using fatherhood terminology in the, in the church and sonship and daughterhood terminology in the church, what tends to happen is, you know, if you had an absentee father, now all of a sudden you tend to transfer all of your unmet needs from your earthly father now to your spiritual father. So now he's supposed to, well, if you say you're my spiritual father, then you better meet everything that my earthly father didn't do. That means you better hold me by the hand and walk with me and call me on the phone every day and talk with me and sit me on your lap and hold me and come to all my games and, 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 and come to my house at a moment's notice and come over and pray for me in the middle of the night if I'm terrified and scared. And, and, and a spiritual father can't do that for 300 people. That sounded like my daughter for a second, but it's not. Uh, but this is what it means. It means that you have an inheritance. It's a spiritual inheritance. You're still looking for a natural inheritance. So he's my father, right? So then he better do all of the things in the natural that my spirit, my earthly father didn't do. And that's not what spiritual fatherhood or spiritual sonship and daughterhood is all about. It's about you receiving an inheritance. His job is to give you your inheritance. And what is your inheritance? Jesus did not leave his disciples any money when he went to heaven. Did he leave them any money? I don't see him calling them all in and says, look, I'm getting ready to be crucified in a couple days. This bank book, I've been saving for you guys. What was the inheritance he left them? You see it in John 17. He says, the words that you gave me, Father, the words that you gave me, I gave them. Your inheritance is the words that God gives your spiritual father for you. And Christian Christian and Aaron, your inheritance are the words the father gives me for you. And so when those words come, you have to receive them as an inheritance. That's why you can't miss church. Because your inheritance is being given. And it's being offered and you're not there to get it. But that also means that coming into submission as spiritual sons and daughters mean that you learn to shift your heart around the inheritance. This is the hard part. When we talk about submission in the body of Christ, we think about submission to commands. We think of submission as coming into organizational authority or coming into organizational alignment so that if he says, I need you to make these copies, I make them. If he calls and says, I need you to serve this ministry, I'll serve it. If he calls and says, I need you to be here at this time, I'll be there. If he calls and says, I need you to stop doing this, I'll stop doing it. That's only the tip of the iceberg of submission. You know what real submission is? My spiritual father calls me and says, man of God, you're doing well. But everything inside me feels like I'm doing poorly. Can I be in submission to that word? Man of God, you are standing in the father's love. But everything inside me feels like the father's cut me off. Can I be in submission to that word? If I'm not in submission to that word, I'm dependent upon my own ability to understand it and experience it. But the moment I come in submission to it, I shift my heart around it and I keep going. It happens in a moment. 
last year, 2010, for my wife and I, the theme was submission. The Lord was speaking to us about submission, combing through our lives, showing us where we were out of order. It seemed like every month the Lord was speaking to me saying, son, you're out of order. You're not in submission. And I was talking to my church about submission, but also the Lord was speaking to me about submission. And I'll never forget, I mean, after going through this process and I kept telling my people, the Lord showed me I was out of order, but now I'm in full submission. And then something else would come up. I'll never forget, I was sitting with a couple of brothers in the church and, well, the time's getting away from me. Stop. Give me Joshua's anointing. Stop. Uh, And I was telling them, I said, I've finally come into submission to my spiritual father. I fought it for so long, but finally I'm in full submission now. Just then the phone rang. I said, excuse me, it was him. Hello? And he says, Benjamin, I was praying this morning and the Lord says you're to do this. Everything inside me said, no, oh, come on. And I said, you know, I'll pray about it. And he says, well, sure, pray about it and see what the Lord says. I got off the phone. I got off the phone and I looked at the guys. I'm like, dang. They're like, so as you were saying about submission, it's like, I got to go, guys. I go home and I get in my prayer closet. I said, God, what do you want me to do? And he says, why are you talking to me? Why are you not in submission to the man that I put over your life? So I called him back. I said, you know, I think the Lord wants me to do that. He says, amen. Praise God. Yes, he does. I did it. And my, at times my skin was crawling. But in my heart, I kept saying, Lord, I submit, I submit, I submit, I submit. I open my heart. I open, I'm going to submit with my heart, not just my actions. Because I can be in behavioral rebellion. I mean, I can be in behavioral submission, but in heart rebellion. And God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's only looking at the heart. He's only looking to see if my heart submits. And so I did it. And it was a major breakthrough in my life because I thought, wow, nobody would have ever been able to move me in that direction before. A year ago, I would have told him I'd pray about it, and that would have been it. I wouldn't have even prayed about it. That just don't bear witness with my spirit. And so when I obeyed, it felt good afterwards. I was like, yeah, and actually it wasn't so bad. Actually, it worked out well in the end. And so now I'm thinking, I'm really in submission. So now I'm telling people again, I'm in submission. Ooh, there was a little rebellion there for a second, but I brought it into submission. Yeah, yeah. And the Lord spoke to me in my prayer closet the next night, and he says, son, you're still in rebellion. I said, what? I mean, the man tells me to do this, and I do it. He tells me to stay here, and I stay. He tells me don't go here, and I don't go. He tells me cancel this, and I cancel it. He tells me move this, and I move it. He tells me change this, and I change it. I don't obey. I don't disobey in anything he instructs me to do. How am I still in rebellion? And the Lord said, because there are many things that he has to tell you again and again and again. And again, and again. I said, what are you talking about? He only has to tell me once. 
When he said, go home and repent to my wife, he told me once. And I went home and repented. When he told me to stop saying this to the church, he told me once. And I never said it again. When he told me to... to, He's always commending me on how quickly I obey. He'll tell me, you need to institute this in the church. I call him the next day. It's done. It's established. So what are you talking about? And the Lord said, six months ago, he told you to be encouraged. And two weeks later, he told you to be encouraged. And a week later, he told you to be encouraged. And every couple weeks, he has to speak encouragement to you. And do you not realize that the moment you become discouraged, you're in rebellion? And the Lord said, when you come into full submission, he'll speak once and say, be encouraged. And you'll receive it as a command. And for the rest of your life, you will not allow yourself to stray from it. Ten years later, you'll be tempted to be discouraged. You say, no, wait. My spiritual father commanded me to be encouraged. I'm encouraged. And then the Lord said this. And son, I have many more things to share with you. But because I have to keep reestablishing the same things, I can never speak higher things to you. But if you allow me to establish you in the basic things, then I can speak something higher to you. And if you allow me to establish that, then I can speak something higher to you. And if you allow me to establish that, but you have to allow me to establish you. I saw many of you last night struggling with the whole fatherhood thing and wrestling with it and fighting with it and, and trying and trying. And all that it took was simply to bring your heart into submission to that word. You say, the father loves you. The father loves me. It doesn't feel like he does. I don't experience that he does, but I'm in submission. I move my heart around that. The father loves me. It's done. It's settled in my heart. You know how much time it saved me when I learned that? Because I stopped arguing with them. You know, I got people in the church that I try to minister to and do counseling with, and I'm arguing with them. Don't you realize that there's a spirit of excellence on your life? Yeah, but I blah, 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 rebellion. You see, it's easy to receive a word of rebuke. You're out of order. Yes, I am. I know. It's easy to submit to that. But when somebody says, you're excellent. In your heart, you're thinking, the poor soul is in denial. They just don't know. The month of December was a rough month for me in the ministry last year. Because I felt like I preached powerful words from the Lord in every service, but the church did not receive them. That's just what it felt to me. So my spiritual, my spiritual father, he calls me on a Sunday afternoon and he says, how was church today? And I said, oh, it was, it was, it was okay. He said, what do you mean it was okay? I said, well, I knew I had a word from the Lord. It was really strong and really powerful, but the church didn't receive it. He said, no, man of God, that's a lie. Not only did the church receive it, but they received it more than any other message you've ever preached. And that's why they were quiet. Because it was hitting them so hard, they couldn't say a word. You ever get socked in the stomach and you can't even... (laughs) (laughs) A 
Um, immediately when he said that, I said, okay. Now, I've learned this over the years. Shift my heart around that. Wow, that was a powerful service today. That was powerful. I said, yeah, everybody received that. The whole house received it. That message brought order to the whole house. Everyone came into order. He said, that's right, man of God. That's right. And I hung up the phone and my heart would be tempted to go back. I said, no, no, no. Everyone received it. Everyone received it. The whole house received it. They received it more than any other message I preached. And when I brought my heart into alignment, when I shifted my heart around that word, all of a sudden the fruit of it broke out. And people started coming to me in the month of January saying, dude. Your sermons in December, dude, I've been downloading them and listening to them over and over and over again. Those were the most powerful messages you've ever preached. I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> amen. <laughs> I wanted to go, what? Were we at the same service? I said, yeah, amen. I shifted my heart around that word. And so the words, that's your inheritance. When the words are being spoken, you're being fathered. You're being fathered through the words. And you have to shift your heart around that because you're expecting something natural. You're expecting an inheritance in the natural. You're expecting a bank book to be given to you. But Jesus said, Father, I gave them the words. The words that you gave me, I entrusted them to them. And that's what Paul said to Timothy, his true son in the faith. He said, the words that I've spoken to you in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust them to trustworthy men. I entrusted you with those words. I gave them to you as an inheritance. The words of the wise are like firmly embedded nails, the proverb says. And so to be sons and daughters means that first and foremost, you learn to hear words and receive them as your inheritance. And second of all, as Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it'll be done by the father. The word sanctifies you because he said in John 17, 17, father, sanctify them by the word. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's the word that sanctifies you, but you've got to begin to receive it as your inheritance. And that's what it means to be sons and daughters. Now, watch this. I, I want to talk about the life of Joseph for, for the remaining time I have here. I want to talk about the life of Joseph because he understands sonship, I think, more than anyone in the Old Testament does. I think Joseph, in this sense, is the Old Testament uh, ver version of Jesus Christ. Now, Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons. Jacob is the father of all 12 of them. The only one younger than Joseph is Benjamin. And Joseph, because, uh, Joseph is born to Jacob in his old age. And so in Genesis 37, the scripture says that Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons. He had a favorite. And he made no bones about it. I mean, he would stand him up in front of all the other sons and say, by the way, you know, this is my favorite. I don't really think very highly of all y'all, but this one right here. This is my son right here. I love him. He's my favorite. This is my favorite. I just love. And he was the youngest, which was a slap in the face. Now, ancient Hebrew culture was a lot like Korean culture. The oldest son has the most authority in the household. That's, that's what's right. That's typical. That's cultural, right? The oldest son. You never put the youngest son in charge of the older ones. But yet Jacob did just that. And he would take Joseph and he'd send him out with a clipboard. Say, go check on your brothers. They're out watching the flocks. Come back and tell me how they're doing. He's home eating turkey sandwiches with his pops. And he sends them out and he would come out with this clipboard. And the scripture says he would bring Jacob home a negative report about his brothers. 
Can you imagine Joseph walking amongst his brothers going, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to tell dad about that. Now, any older brothers would want to kill that little twerp. Here's the interesting thing to me about Joseph. His brothers hate him, but he doesn't seem to notice it. I had a dream last night. He gathers his brothers. Everybody, come here. I got to share this with you. This is awesome. I had a dream last night, right? Okay. We were out in a field. And we were binding up sheaves of hay. And mine rose up and stood upright. And all of yours came and bowed down before me. Isn't that awesome? Reuben, just let me kill him right now. Please, just... Just, just let me hit him once. You know, when you're in a room with a bunch of people that hate you, can't you feel it? Joseph was so established in the favor of his father that he couldn't even feel the rejection of anyone else. The father had clothed him in a coat of many colors so he could stand before a group of people that hated him and wanted to kill him. And he was just as enthusiastic and excited Because he didn't allow rejection to speak to his identity. Say, who are you? Do you allow rejection to speak to your identity? When you feel rejected by people, do you start feeling rejected? You say, well, I feel rejected. Why? Because of the look on their face. So the look on their face is telling you who you are. But Joseph did not allow rejection to speak to his identity. Everyone could reject me. My father loves me. He's clothed me in a richly ornamented robe. He parades me in front of everyone and says, This is my favorite son. This is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And the favor of the father was so loud in Joseph's ears, he couldn't hear anyone else's rejection. Man, I just feel good. About me. I said, but everyone in there hates you. They do? No, you must be mistaken. I walk in a room, I just feel loved. I just walk, oh, everybody loves me. How could you not love me? I'm the son of Jacob. I'm Joseph. I wear the coat of many colors. Everyone loves me. No, those people hate you. Really? I'm going to win their hearts. Watch. I'm going to win their hearts. Watch. Watch. I just don't carry rejection. I wear favor, not rejection. The clothing of rejection just slips off me. It doesn't fit me. But when you don't wear favor, it's like you've been covered in glue and rejection just... You just begin to attract rejection. You feel rejected by people who aren't even rejecting you. You feel rejected by people who actually like you. You're sharing a story and the person looks down. You think, oh, they don't want to hear that story. If they're not jumping up and down going, yeah, and then what happened? You're telling the story, but you're thinking, am I talking too much? Am I talking to they not want to hear this? Am I just, am I, am I overstepping my boundaries? Am I going too far? Am I telling too much? Is this story boring? Is it, maybe they don't want to hear about me. Maybe they don't like me. Maybe they don't think anything of me. 
And then you do one of two things. Either you come on stronger. No, I'm going to make them like me. And then let me tell you another story. And you know what else I did? 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 And then the person's going, okay, okay, you know what? I got to go. Wait, wait, one more story. Okay, I got two minutes, but I really got to go. Okay, well, we're good. two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. And then you talk for another 30 minutes. And then you know what I did? And then you know what I did? And then you know what else happened? And then what else happened? I can't let you go until you like me. I need you to clothe me in a garment of acceptance. And until I feel accepted, I can't let you go. So I got to talk to you more. Because my sense of self, my sense of identity depends on your response to me. You go the manic way or you go the depressive way. Say, can I tell you a story? Oh, sure. Well, he didn't look enthusiastic about that. Actually, I know you're busy. I don't you. I don't want to burden you. I, understand. I know you got a lot on your mind. Joseph didn't allow rejection to speak to his identity. Secondly, he didn't allow adversity to speak to his identity. Watch this. Down there in 37, in Genesis chapter 37, his dad says, All right, son, I'm going to send you to your brothers. Because you know they're over there in Shechem watching my flocks, tending my flocks. So I want you to go down to Shechem and I want you to just check on them and come back and give me a good report or a bad report. Just give me a report. Actually, I know those brothers of yours are up to no good. Come back and tell me what they're doing. I got my belt ready when they get home. And and Joseph says, yes, sir, we'll do. All right. I'm ready to go. I'll do it. He doesn't say, oh, come on, dad. You know, those guys hate me. Do I really have to go to see them? Can't you send somebody else? Can I just stay here with you? I know those guys hate me. I'm going to be rejected. Father says, I want you to go share the gospel with lost people over there. But they, what if they reject me? Go invite that person to church. But uh, they may reject me. Joseph's not even aware of the possibility of being rejected. The father says, go. Okay. Let's go. heard a comedian who was talking about dogs. He said, white people walk their dogs at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and a dog with no leash. And the dog's just walking next to his owner. <laughs> Roll over. Okay. <laughs> Sit. Yes, sir. <laughs> Fetch. I'll be right back. <laughs> as good as you treat me. He said, a black person lets their dog off the leash. We ain't got no dog no more. <laughs> <laughs> said I could do better on my own <laughs> so Joseph goes and he goes to Shechem and he doesn't find his brothers there and he's going field to field looking around for his brothers and he meets a man in the field and the man says who are you looking for he says I'm looking for my brothers they're supposed to be here in Shechem the father specifically sent them to Shechem and he says yeah I've seen those brothers of yours they went over to Dothan he says oh they're going to get it wait till the father knows they're not where they're supposed to be so he starts heading to Dothan right he's got his clipboard in his hand he's already jotting down notes mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And his brothers see him coming in the distance. And it says they start plotting to kill him. 
Say, you know what? I'm done. I'm sick and tired of fooling with this, this kid. They know they're in trouble. They know. He's going to read them the riot act. So they said, let's just kill him. But one brother Reuben said, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's, you know, let's not shed any blood. So when he gets there, they jump him, they beat him up, they throw him in a pit. But the first thing they did, the first thing they did, the first thing they did was strip him of the robe. They could not stand to see the sign of the father's favor on his physical body anymore. And the first thing the devil wants to do is strip you of the robe. He's not interested in your health. He's not interested in your house. He's not interested in anything but stripping you of the robe because he knows that he is a, he's standing under the father's judgment and he can't stand to see you standing under the father's favor. And everything you go through is designed to strip you of the robe. And it says they strip the robe off of his back. They beat him and they throw him in an empty cistern. And it says, then they sat down to eat. Well, I feel better. Start the fire. We having some kalbi. Some pulgogi. Get mm. some chickens. Have some tak. Man, the chicken, some nang yum chicken. Yang yum, yang yum chicken. There's an anointing on yang yum chicken. I just feel a Holy Ghost. I want to cry. Now, watch this. It says they sold him to some Ishmaelite traders. Who was Ishmael? The slave son. They sold him to the slave son. When he's a descendant of the free son. So that for all intents and purposes, his adversity makes it look like he has left the favor of the father and come under the judgment of the slave son. But he doesn't allow his adversity to speak to his identity. So in going through a trial, he doesn't think this trial means that the father's left me. And the fact that the father's left me means that I'm not pleasing in his sight anymore. I must not be pleasing to the father. I thought I walked under favor, but I guess not. Why? Because I'm in adversity. The Ishmaelites sell him to Potiphar, the captain of the guard. The captain of Pharaoh's guard. And he was Pharaoh's executioner. He was a bad brother. And what does he do in Potiphar's household? He serves like a son. Watch this. Now, if it were me, you make me a slave. My people have been slaves. You can't take me back to that. Man, I would have been the most reluctant slave Potter say, mop that floor. I'd have been like. <laughs> I wouldn't be like Kunta. He wouldn't have to beat me. He'd say, your name is Toby. I'd be like, Toby, that's good. <laughs> I like that name. That sounds good. I'm going to mop this floor, but I'm not going to do it from my heart. <laughs> 
Why? Because I don't like feeling like a slave. Joseph assumed the position of a slave, but not the identity of a slave. He was never a slave in his heart. This is just a positional reality, not an identificational reality. And so Potiphar said, mop that floor. He said, mop this floor. You ain't never seen a floor like I'm about to mop it. You're going to be able to eat off this floor when I'm done. Look, through the legs, mop. Bam! Potiphar came in that kitchen. He was like, whoa! The floor is gleaming. See, yeah, I put a little, <laughs> put a little vinegar on it. <laughs> you put a little vinegar in it, just make it sweet. I <laughs> said, so man, that's awesome. That's, that's good. Wow. Okay. I'll tell you what. I want you to clear out those hedges over there. He goes, no problem, Potiphar. I got it. Yes, sir. And he runs out there and he gets his weed whacker. And he sees a couple of slaves sitting around. He said, what are you guys sitting around for? Come on, help me with this. And he clears it out. Potiphar thinks it's a three-day job. He does it in one day. And it looks better than Potiphar thought, even imagined it could look. He goes, how'd you do that? Well, I saw a couple of slaves sitting around. And I just, got, I just put them to work. You put other slaves to work? Yeah. Here's what I want you to do. Take those ten slaves and build a walkway over here. Yes, sir! can't do less than excellent. I don't care where I am. I don't care what the conditions. I don't care how unfair it is. I don't care if I've been wronged. I don't care if everything is wrong around me. Everything in me is right. And so I can't be less than a son. And a son always serves with excellence. He never allows adversity to speak to his identity. I am not my trial. I am not my tribulation. I am not my trouble. And so even if I walk through trouble, I don't have to be in trouble because there's no trouble in me. Why? Because the brothers were able to strip the favor off of his body, but not off of his heart. You can't strip. You can take the sign of the Father's favor off of my body, but you can't take the reality of His favor out of my heart. I live in it. Favor is the house that I live in. His goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I can assume the position of a slave, but I'll never assume the identity of it. Mm. Come on. Thirdly, he did not allow his temptation to speak to his identity. Now here comes the seductress, Potiphar's wife. And she was bad. Oh, she was fine. And she was obviously experienced. This wasn't her first time. And the scripture says Joseph was young and well built. He looked like Andy. You know, he was... mm. Potiphar's wife looked over and saw Joseph and she was like, dang, get me some of that. Wait till my husband goes on his next business trip. Potiphar goes on a business trip. His wife turns down the lights, turns on some Luther Vandross, (laughs) cracks open a bottle of wine. Puts on a little negligee. Hits the intercom and says, send Joseph in. I got a job for him. (laughs) Joseph walks in. Yes, ma'am. What can I do for you? 
I'll tell you what you can do for me. (laughs) Now watch this. Joseph is young, handsome, good looking, and his hormones are raging. He's just at that age. Everything in his physical body wanted it. And I guarantee you, that brother was tempted. Secondly, he was a slave with no wife in sight. He had no promise that Potiphar would ever allow him to have a wife. He could have been thinking in his head, I'm serving as a slave and what do I get? Nothing. Shoot, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get it when I can, where I can, how I can. Maybe if God provided me with a wife, I wouldn't need to do this. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, wow. A cloud of conviction just said, I'm not going to make no eye contact. (laughs) Young men, if you have that mentality... When you get married, that temptation is not going to go away. But here's the problem. The devil throws a thousand temptations at you every day. And if you allow your temptation to speak to your identity, you start thinking you're all kind of stuff. Joseph's tempted, but he's not standing there thinking, oh, no, I'm tempted. Now I'm wicked. I'm defiled. I'm unclean before God. Oh, my God, the things that are going coming to my mind that I'm going to do with this woman... It's, it's wicked and it's vile and all of a sudden shame comes and shame makes you feel little. But shame also takes you out of the realm of God's power to stand through temptation. The devil will throw a million temptations at you a day. But if you start allowing your temptation to speak to your identity, you're going to think you're all kind of stuff. <laughs> you seen that, that episode of Seinfeld? Where George is getting a massage and it's a male masseuse. (laughs) And the guy pulls down his pants a little bit and he's he's massaging him. He's he's all uncomfortable. Why? Because he's afraid that he might feel something that he don't want to (laughs) feel. And it might mean that he's something that he doesn't want to be. And if you're afraid that you're going to feel something that you don't want to feel because it might mean that you're something that you don't want to be, you don't know who you are in the first place. I have a friend who was involved in all kinds of sexual perversion. From the time he was 14, he started getting deeply involved in sexual perversion And he said that by the time he was 16, he had more than 200 sexual partners. And most of them were men. He was even selling himself in sex clubs for money to older men. At the same time, he was an intercessor in the church preaching. And everybody in church saw him as a powerful man of God. And he was, but he had a double life. 
And he said in the middle of a service, there was an evangelist visiting his church. And the evangelist called him out and said, young man, come here. And he came and stood in the front. And the evangelist said, the Lord has shown me that he's given you great wisdom beyond your years and great anointing and great power that will bring you before multitudes and stand you before kings. And God's, God's calling and anointing will take you to the ends of the earth. But the Lord also says that you're like, you're like Esau because you're getting ready to trade your inheritance for a bowl of porridge. And he said he broke and began to weep. The evangelist came down and laid hands on him. And he said, when that man laid hands on me, the power of God hit me so strong and so hard that I flew off of my feet and hit the floor. And he said, when I was down there on the floor, the power of God came on me so strong that I, when I got up, I felt blameless. He said, Jesus had bleached the inner walls of my heart and he had stripped me of all of my shame and I felt blameless. And he said, I was running around telling everybody in the church, God just freed me from sexual perversion and male prostitution. He said, I had no shame. I, it, the shame was gone because I was clean. It had nothing to do with who I was anymore. But watch this. The minute the Lord took all that shame from him, the church started giving it back to him. So people started saying, stay away from my kids. And if he went to hug a man, the man would go. And all of a sudden he began to feel the temptation again. And when he felt the temptation again, he thought, this must still be who I am. Maybe I'm still being delivered. Let me tell you something. When Jesus knocks you on the floor and bleaches the inner walls of your heart and makes you blameless, the work is done. You are not still being delivered. You are delivered. That's not who you are anymore. But when you get up and the temptation comes back, you call that temptation a liar and say, that is not who I am. You're not going to speak to my identity. You're not going to tell me who I am because only the father can tell me who I am. You know, there's a thing about names. I have this thing about names. I hate nicknames. I think nicknames are from Satan. Why? Because your parents spent weeks or even months coming up with a good name for you only to have you go to school and have some guy named Jim Bob change it. I have a cousin named Erica Jones. Somebody decided her name was Buffy. The Vampire Slayer? I mean, come on. But it took, and everybody started calling her Buffy. I said, you know what? Her mama called her Erica. I'm going to call her Erica. So people asked me, what are you guys going to call Alethea? I said, what do you mean? I mean, what are you going to call her? We fasted and prayed over that name. <laughs> We're going to call her her name. Her name is Alethea. Well, how about Lala? <laughs> I'm going to slap you so hard. If I hear you call my daughter Lala, I'm going to back slap you. Do like my mama. My mama used to say, boy, sit still before I come over there and slap you so hard. You'll have six visions, five dreams, and four revelations. I'm going to smack you through the tribulation. You will wake up in the millennium. 
you'll wake up at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to come over there and lay hands on you suddenly. And I want you to know, when my mama laid hands on us, we got healed. The way we used to walk, we didn't walk no more. The way we used to talk, we didn't talk no more. Joseph did not allow his temptation to speak to his identity. Watch this. He runs and leaves his cloak in the hand of this seductress woman. And he doesn't go back to his room feeling guilty or feeling ashamed. Because shame always flows out of your sense of identity. If there's one phrase I want to remove from the lips of every believer in Jesus Christ, it's, you should be ashamed of yourself. Don't you ever say that to anyone. Because if there's anything God wants to do, even if you have sin in your life, if there's anything God wants to do with your sin, is cause there to be a separation between you and your sin. You are not your sin. The job of every father in the Old Testament was to circumcise their sons and to cut off the foreskin of the flesh. And the, fa- the job of every spiritual father is to circumcise his sons and daughters. It is my job when my sons and daughters come to me talking about the flesh and the activities of the flesh. My job is to circumcise them and remove it from them by telling them that is not who you are. You are not going to allow this temptation to speak to your identity. And God almost killed Moses because he didn't circumcise his son. That's how important it is. We can talk more about that later. Joseph did not allow his temptation to speak to his identity. Next thing you know, you find him in the prison. And what's he doing in the prison? Sulking? He's prophesying. You look downcast. What is the problem? The question is, why don't you look downcast? You're obviously having a worse day than me. But see, when you've been established in your father's favor, you don't have a bad day. A bad day under favor is better than a good day, better than the best day without it. That's why David said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's why he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Why? Because even if I'm a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, I stand under his favor. And it's better under his favor than even in the richest palace without his favor. Then accidentally turned my microphone off. And finally, this is the hard part. Joseph did not allow his success to speak to his identity. Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. And the baker says, or or the butler, sorry, he killed the baker. And Joseph prophesied that too. By the way, God's going to kill you. Sorry. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) 
He's called before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I hear you're a man of wisdom and that you can interpret dreams. He said, sorry, I can't help you. But God can. So tell me the dream, and I'll take it to the Lord. He doesn't come and say, yes, Pharaoh, finally you've discovered me. <laughs> finally you've heard of how great of a man I was. He wasn't sitting in the prison going, I don't belong here. <laughs> Doesn't anybody see me? Doesn't anybody know? How much potential? If somebody would give me a chance. He's not sitting in the prison thinking all I need is an opportunity to shine. Because if you're sitting in the place you're sitting thinking all you need is an opportunity to shine, what you're really saying is, if I just had this opportunity, it would make me feel so much better about who I am. And it means you just don't know who you are. Just as Joseph assumed the position of a slave, but never became a slave, he didn't assume the identity of a slave. So he assumed the position of a prisoner, but not the identity of a prisoner. In the end, he assumed the position of a prime minister, but not the identity of a prime minister. His identity was in his sonship. Rescues the whole country. He operates the same way as a prime minister, as he did as a prisoner, as he did as a slave. I'm the most excellent slave. And it talks about the favor of the Lord. And every time it spoke of God's favor, it says when he came to Potiphar's house, the favor of the Lord was with Joseph. And so Potiphar put him in charge. He goes to the prison. The favor of the Lord was with Joseph. And so the warden put him in charge. And he goes and stands before Pharaoh. And the favor of the Lord was with him. And so Pharaoh put him in charge, took the ring and put it on his finger and says, you're in charge. He says, that's cool. Wherever I go, I'll be excellent. It really doesn't matter what position you put me in. See, this is the thing. We got folks in the church that need a particular position. And what I see is people in the church saying, well, I'm really going to pour my heart into it when, when I get to this position. I feel like you're not giving your all. I feel like you're just kind of skating through. Yes, because I, I just don't really feel connected to this position you've gave me. It's just not in my heart. I, I just, I'm not passionate about it. Try being a slave. Joseph could have said, you know, I just wrote, I'm management. <laughs> being a slave. I don't do windows or wash dishes. Joseph said, I don't care the position you put me in. It's going to be excellent. It's going to be excellent. It's going to be excellent. Why? Because I'm not trying to obtain favor. I've already got it. I got it. I'm so full of favor that favor will follow me. Favor will put me in charge. You put me in charge of mop ministry. Man, that, those mops, whoo, they're not going to know what hit them. I'm going to govern those floors. I'm going to do some apostolic mopping. I have full authority over dust and dirt. Mm, come out in the name of Jesus. I am establishing these floors in the spirit of cleanliness and holiness. Mm. Don't matter where you put me. I can work at Safeway 
or at the gas station. But I'll do it with so much excellence. You've never seen a place like that before. Because I'm a son. I'm not going to be depressed working in the gas station because it doesn't tell me who I am. It's just a position, but a position is not an identity. Make no mistake. I don't care what your calling is. I don't care what your anointing is. I don't care what your destiny is. I don't care what your gifts are. You are not a prophet, apostle, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. That is what you are, not who you are. That's part of your nature, not your identity. And when you try to make your nature your identity, you end up with anxiety. Because if being a pastor or a preacher is who I am, I better do it well all the time. And when I'm not doing it, I have no idea who I am. At the end of the line, Jacob, when, uh, Joseph, when he gets the opportunity, he brings his whole family to Egypt. And you know the whole story of what happened. He brings his whole family to Egypt. He brings in his father. He's so proud of his father. And the scripture says that shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph, in his new position, could have been ashamed of his family. I'm going to send some food, but y'all stay over there in Canaan. Promise, please, you don't come over here and mess stuff up for me here. He never forgot where he came from. And at the end of his life, he gathers his brothers and his family members. And he says, the day is coming when the Lord's going to bring you up out of this land. That is, he never sets his vision on the place of his success. He'll leave the place where he's successful to go to the place where he's called. And he says to his family, when the Lord delivers you from this place, take my bones with you. Because my destiny and our destiny is not in this land. But God has a promised land for us beyond the place of success. When you walk in favor, God will make you successful in every place, no matter where you go. But you won't wear success. You'll wear favor. And as God establishes you in your sonship and your daughterhood to him, and you begin to wear his favor... You'll make failure even look like success. You'll look and say it was an absolute failure. And people will come and say, I don't believe it. This was awesome. This is amazing. Wow, this is great. Why? Because favor is a shield. Scripture says he surrounds you with his favor as with a shield. Meaning when people look at you, they don't look at your performance. All they see is the shield. God's favor is a shield that will keep people even from seeing your faults and your downfalls and, and your mistakes. His favor surrounds you as with a shield. All they see is a shield. David said, you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. It don't matter what I do, where I go. Abraham, even when he lied, he goes down to Egypt and tells him, she's my sister. He lies and comes home richer. God spoke to Pharaoh and said, Abraham lied. She's not his wife. Now give him an offering and ask him to pray for you and you'll be okay. That's how much favor he walks in. I mean, the lie is exposed and Pharaoh says, here, take this money. Take these flocks. Take these herds. Take these slaves. Now please go. And he goes home richer. God turned even his mistake into a blessing. 
And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. He always works good for you and me. Why? We're his sons. We're his daughters. He loves us. We love him. And his favor surrounds us as with a shield. And love never fails. And when you have been established in the spirit of sonship and daughterhood, you know that God never fails. And because you're his sons and daughters, you never fail either. You can't fail. You can't fail. You can't fail in any area. And I'll end with this. My spiritual father, I was talking to him one day. I said, I'm so scared that God's going to bless my ministry and I'm going to fall into sin. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, Benjamin? I just don't believe it's possible for me to fall into sin. I just don't believe it's possible. And I thought, what kind of heresy are you? (laughs) And he opened up to Titus and it says, look at this. It says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He said, how can I fall when he keeps me from falling? Now, if it was now, if it was dependent upon my own power to keep myself from falling, then I'd say, Benjamin, I could fall any time. But it says he keeps me from falling and presents me blameless before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. How can I possibly fall? Am I stronger than God? And then he turned over to 1 John chapter 5 where it says, He who was born of God cannot sin. It says, He who was born of God does not sin. In fact, he cannot sin because God's seed remains in him. And he said, Benjamin, you know why you can sin? I said, why? He said, because you still believe you can. And all things are possible to him who believes. But it says here, he who was born of God, meaning his sons and daughters, they don't sin. You've read that and felt condemned because you didn't see it as a promise that's to be believed. You saw it as a command to be obeyed in your own power. He said, Benjamin, you know, it's so hard for believers to believe this that John had to say earlier in chapter 2. Dear children, I write things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And not only ours, but also for the world. But as you mature in Christ, that is, as you mature... Now, when we talk about maturity in Christ, we're often talking about maturing in your understanding of doctrine in your practice of morality, and in your expertise in ministry. And that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual maturity at all. We've got some very mature-looking Christians who are babies. Why? Because John says in chapter 2 of 1 John, I write to you children because your sins are forgiven on account of his name, meaning you're still learning that. And you're still struggling with that and wrestling with that. But that's baby stuff. But then he says, I write to you young men because you're strong. Because you've overcome the evil one. 
and because the word of God lives in you. Meaning you're learning not, you've gone beyond the forgiveness stage. Now you're learning how to fight the devil and overcome him. But then he says, I write to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. Meaning you're beyond the struggle. You've come into full maturity in your sonship. And you've learned that he who was born of God cannot sin. Because God's seed remains in him. And what I see in the father It belongs to me. It's my inheritance. Why? Because he gave me the spirit of adoption. And because I am a son, I'm also an heir. And I'm a joint heir with Jesus. It means me and Jesus are inheriting the kingdom of the Father. And we're inheriting the holiness of the Father. And we're inheriting the purity of the Father. And the power of the Father. And the authority of the Father. And the kingdom of the Father. It all belongs to me because I'm a son. And it belongs to you because you are sons and you are daughters. Yes, you are. Amen. You got it? You're established in it, aren't you? Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I speak blessing. Actually, yes. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I speak blessing over these sons and daughters. I command the orphan spirit to leave right now in Jesus' name. You're a lie anyway. You're a lie anyway. That orphan spirit is an illusion and you're not even going to allow it to speak to your identity anymore. You're not even going to say, I have an orphan spirit because that's a lie. And the only reason you have it is because you believe you have it. The scripture says in Colossians 3.15 that he has disarmed powers and principalities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that includes the orphan spirit. It's been disarmed. It's been disarmed, meaning it has no power over you. You think I'm going to spend years getting that orphan spirit off of me. No, you're not. You're free from the orphan spirit today. You're free from it right now. It's broken off of your life. Why? Because Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth has set you free this morning. First John chapter three, verse one. Now we are the sons of God. Say now. Not later, now. Now we are the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. Make no mistake, your destiny is not some ministry. Your destiny is not money. Your destiny is not fame. Your destiny is not success. Your destiny is not some kind of excellence or some kind of achievement. Your destiny is the image of Jesus Christ that is God has predetermined before the foundation of the world that when he is done with you, you are going to look just like Jesus. He is the firstborn among many brethren. He is the firstborn among many brethren. God has predestined you, which means he has predetermined your destination. When Pastor Christian bought my plane ticket to come to Korea, the ticket says, SFO, departure, Incheon, arrival. He predetermined that my destination is Incheon. All I got to do is take the ticket and get on the plane. 
He predestined me for Inchun. Before the foundation of the world, God bought you a plane ticket and it says departure, fallenness. Arrival, the image of Jesus. And that ticket has your name on it. That t- and he paid for it in the blood of his own son. He paid for it with his own life. And it doesn't depend upon your power to achieve it. It's based on his power. His divine power has given you every need, everything you need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called you by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given you his very great and precious promises. So that by them, you might participate in the divine nature. And escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. You participate in his nature by embracing his word as your inheritance as sons and daughters. Peter says, you have been born again, not of corruptible, but incorruptible seed through the living and enduring word of God. That word of God is incorruptible seed. It cannot be aborted. There is no aborting it. it, It's unabortable. When you have been born again, there can be no abortion. There's no sudden infant crib death. It's incorruptible. Your sonship in God is inviolable. The devil cannot violate it. It's indestructible. The devil cannot destroy it. It's irrevocable. It cannot be overturned. It's unredeemable, non-transferable. You can't transfer it to somebody else. It's permanent. But the one problem is that your mind must be undeceivable. The orphan spirit comes not to make you an orphan because the orphan spirit cannot make you an orphan. You cannot take a son and turn him into an orphan, but you can take a son and deceive him into thinking he's an orphan. And the orphan spirit is nothing more than the deception of the enemy to convince you that you have no inheritance. That you're unwanted and unaccepted. But the scripture says God puts the destitute in families. And he's come this morning to put you into families. And he's put you in a family. And you're a part of the family of God. And you are sons and daughters of God in this house. Under this father and this mother. And he's put in them just a small piece of your inheritance in him. But this morning I want you to lift up your eyes above the father and mother of this house. Definitely above the, the grandfather and grandmother of this house. And I want you to look up, lift up your eyes to the Father in heaven. And say, hallowed be your name. Because if you look at that Lord's Prayer, everything flows out of that first statement, our Father. If you can't embrace the our Father, then you can't embrace the daily bread. And the lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can't embrace the forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But if you embrace the Our Father, everything else comes easy. Of course, he's going to give me my daily bread. He's my father and I'm his son. Of course, he's going to forgive me my trespasses as I forgive my neighbors. Of course, he's going to lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Why? Because for his is the the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Today the Father has come to establish you as his sons and daughters. And I decree and declare that that orphan spirit is broken off of your life right now. It's broken. Now you come into submission to that word. 
you shift your heart around it. You're not waiting for some touch at the altar, fall on the floor, roll around and get lint in your hair and go home believing that you're just as bound as when you came in. Your freedom is not in your manifestation. It's in your faith. You can manifest like a wild boar and go home just as bound as when you came. Or you could sit on the back row and hear it and believe it and get set free. And you're hearing it and you're believing it and you're free. You're free. You're free to live as sons and daughters of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. You have received the spirit of adoption and there is no orphan spirit in you. You are sons and not bastards. Hallelujah. Now just stand to your feet and rejoice in that right now. Come on, just begin to give him glory. Open your mouths and begin to worship him. Come on, just begin to worship him with a loud voice. Begin to worship him with a loud voice. Begin to worship him with a loud voice. Hey, say. Hey, come on. We worship you, Father. We worship you, Father. We worship you, Father. Hallelujah. 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 The joy of the Lord is just being released right now. Just receive the joy of the Lord. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Hallelujah. Then shall the righteous shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Mm. Your father knows what you have need of before you ask him. Hallelujah. And Jesus said, fear not, little flock. For it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You say, I've been seeking to receive the kingdom and I can't seek to receive it. Of course, it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And it's only the sons of the kingdom that receive it. But as you've received the spirit of sonship that causes you to cry out, Abba, Father, all of a sudden you find that you inherit the kingdom and you didn't ask for it. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Mm.